0: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
1: A choice right now, right now, between fear and love.
2: It's just a
1: rock.
0: Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth... Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking.
1: We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are.
2: There's a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity.
0: That's very really profound.
2: Very funny. Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, Jacob proctor he has degrees in geological science physical anthropology and he has his master's in carbonate geology guys uh, we have an awesome conversation if you're into nerding out on planet science and talking a little bit about ufos but not too much but a, a good amount uh then this is the episode for you uh jacob is an old friend of mine uh the last time i saw him we were cliff diving and he was teaching me how to throw rocks uh in the water ahead of me so that i didn't split my feet open which was fun So uh, he's a very interesting guy, Uh, has some phenomenal stories. So without any further ado, Jacob Proctor. All right, good friends out there in the listening world. Ladies and gentlemen, a good special episode today. We have an old blast from the past of mine, Jacob Proctor, on the show. He's going to talk about some amazing stuff. This dude, when we met back in the day, I was like, this guy right here is going to do some amazing shit. And here you are doing amazing shit. So uh, for my audience that doesn't know you... um, Go ahead and just tell us a little bit about you, man.
1: Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Brandon. It's it's you know, the last time I remember seeing you, it was you were playing a playing a show for uh, at Little Woodrose, I think. And man, um, it's always always good memories going back there. But so, my name is Jacob Proctor, and um, I've I studied geology undergrad at, at University of Texas. I did geology, physical anthropology. And then uh, later went on to, to do my master's in carbonate geology, where I ended up doing a lot of work into um, earth and atmospheric sciences in this sort of area. So going out to Belize, evaluating reefs, you know, trying to understand how climate change is impacting the integrity of the reefs. Um, and then sort of in between the grad school and, and all that, it was, um, I was working in, in the energy sector as well. So that was kind of what, what fueled all, the, all the, the directions I ended up going, you know?
2: It's amazing. And yes, and the last time I remember seeing you, um, I don't remember that show. Unfortunately, when I played, I don't know if you remember, I was a little uh, three sheets to the wind pretty much by the first song. So. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you were always there, man. We always hung out and had good parties down there in Houston. Um, so when the last time I saw you, though, that I remember was when we went camping. Do you remember that? And we did the cliff jumping? Yeah, yeah, that was in Pace Bend. I
1: remember that as well.
2: Yes, and you had your buddy there, the Army guy, right? Was he in the Army or the Marines?
1: Yeah, it was Kyle Lopris. He was Marines.
2: Okay, I'd only met him the once. We hit it off. He's great. He's gigantic. And what yeah. I remember that just sticks out in my mind about you, man, besides the fact that you're like, you've always been cool shit, you've always been very sweet and interesting, and that's what we're going to get into tonight. Uh, but what I wanted to say, though, was... When, when we were up there on that cliff, it was like, what, 80 feet, something like this massive, right? Or was it that big or am I? Yeah, am No, I, I think it was,
1: you know, 60, 70 feet. It was definitely up there. I mean, it was, it was tall that day for sure.
2: Yeah. And you got some cliff diving or some rock diving uh, experience. Where could you just it was, in, it was
1: in, yeah. I mean, with Kyle, we had gone down to, to Greece and gone cliff jumping off on the island of, of, uh, Corfu. And, um, it was, it was pretty wild. There was a a rock climber there that, um, he, he was was saying, look, if you're going to jump from this height, you have to throw something in front of you to break the water. And you probably remember that, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, we, we went cliff diving there and then we went to an even bigger cliff, which was in France in, in the Gorge de Verdun. And that was pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, they had this gorge went; it was very straight and along the sides, you could actually walk up. The 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 strike in the rock, um, at the the layer of the rock, you could actually walk right up it, and so you could get really high, and um, so that was that was pretty intense. I remember we kept kind of pushing each other a little bit higher and higher, and yeah, as you do, we got right? up to some pretty extreme heights. I think at some point we we hit around around 89 feet. It was really really up there. It felt very high at the time, anyway. Yes, and, <laughs> and this- in the pictures.
2: Oh, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is what I remember about you. So we were up there on this gigantic cliff, whatever. And you said that you turned around and grabbed a rock. I mean about, I don't know, about the size of a dinner plate. And you were like, Oh, grab your rock. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then you told me about that, about how you have to break the water and then jump in. Cause it's like slamming into concrete if you don't. And I was yeah. just like, damn, this is both terrifying and amazing all at the same time. And we did it. It was me, you and Kyle. Right. And yeah. we did it a couple times. It was fun, but your boy I I mean, because the first time we went, we went, it was... Crazy, and then and you got to jump right on that bubble from eighty feet away or whatever, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, your boy Kyle was not five feet from me, and he pops out of the water with a bloody nose everywhere. I was like, "Damn, man, that was <laughs> it was wild, dude." So it was this this adventure is what uh, I left you with in my mind, and that's where my memory stays with you again. Aside the fact that you're amazing and interesting, so let's get into why you're interesting, man. Uh, besides all the reasons, you uh, your work in geology is fascinating. So tell tell me a little bit about uh, how you got started into that? Why you were so interested in studying them and also jumping off of them? We've covered that. Uh, yeah. So what what got you into that, man?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I wish it was something a little bit more interesting. But you know, my my dad actually gave me the the interest. I mean, he was going off to Madagascar and Kenya and Tanzania, going on safaris and looking for oil and, and gas, basically uh, reserves in in the jungle. And um, he would come back with these wild stories of um, you know just getting getting stuck, lost in the forest before GPS and all this. And and you know it, as a kid you you hear stories like that. It's very impressionable. And, and so I just kind of always grew up knowing I wanted to do geology. And then when I started getting into it, I realized there's a little bit too much math. <laughs> and I had to I, I kind of tried to shift gears to archaeology, anthropology a bit. But then I realized no, I can do this and and just kept kept with it. But I, you know, it's, I think the thing that always drew me to it was getting out to the fields. It it was going out looking for rocks, minerals, um, fossils, and, and that sort of hobby was really, you know, what my, you know, how I connected with my dad on this particular point. So, um, you know, it just kind of kept going. And, And even with my, my wife, it was the same thing, you know, we were both geologists. So we traveled a lot around Brazil, um, looking for mines. And, um, just, uh, I mean, it was the best way to see the culture, see the countryside and, um, you know, it's just, it was, I don't know, something about it. It was just, you know, getting into nature and, and I ended up holding beautiful rocks all the time, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to beat. So,
2: yeah.
1: you know, just kind of like it, I guess, you know.
2: No, it's it's interesting and it's so fascinating and yes, and what you said about your father and how you you know feel about it is you, we all think of like Indiana Jones, of course, you know, and then of course um, Jurassic Park when they're out there digging up that that dinosaur, uh, it was so cool. And so these type of adventure things, that's like a childhood thing, man. That's a whimsy, and you're out there putting hands on this stuff and looking and looking at it, like touching it, you know. And I I like ancient cultures and the old monoliths and stuff like that i mean it's in the megaliths of the world it's fascinating to me i love that kind of thing and so have you ever what's the coolest monolith that you've been to or ancient site that you've been to oh man
1: yeah so when i was in when i was in my undergrad um i was in belize um i went to a a, an archaeological camp in in belize and we were five six hours away from the nearest city and, and really, and there was a big problem with pit vipers out there as well. So, I mean, if you get bit by one of these things, I mean, a helicopter comes in, takes you out, you're going to be dead by the time you get out. So it was a little nerve wracking because you could see them every now and again. But on, on one of the days, um, I had off, it, we, I was out there for about three months. And one of the days I, um, went with one of the guys and we hiked down the road. It was all dirt road, obviously paved out paved out secondary forest. And um, and so you know you're going through kind of dirty rocky roads, um, but just hiking. I, we didn't have any. We didn't have a car at the time because everyone had the cars out out on camp. But this was our day off. So anyway, we got out there, and um, you enter into this ancient city. It was called La Milpa, and this ancient city was totally covered in grass and trees, and it was so it was so weird. You 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 walk into it. And you look around, and you're like, where the hell is the city? And then you, you, your eye starts to relax and get used to the shadows. And all of a sudden, you see that there's hills in the middle of this forest. They're not hills. They're they're like pyramids. They're covered in dirt and earth, and the forest has just taken over these pyramids. And and so it was it was so wild because I mean this was a big city. I mean, we walked for half three quarters of a mile throughout this city. It was totally covered in dirt and forest. And it was just undiscovered. And I was sitting in it like six hours away from the nearest anything. And it it was just a very surreal, uh, never, never forget kind of experience, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, did you ever report it? Did anybody ever go back and go, you know what? That was undiscovered. We're going to call it Procterville and (laughs) you've got it. No, it,
1: it had already been, it had already been discovered. It just hadn't been fully excavated. Gotcha. And so like the way it works is, you know, there were there were digs that were known and and actually what happens is is they go and get pillaged and and so you'll go out to these things that are totally covered but you'll see looters they've they've trenched basically straight into the mine or straight into the um into the pyramid and so what they would do is they would just take whatever they could find and then sell it on the black market um and so the archaeologists that were coming in were going in and basically trying to recover whatever they could recover and also preserve like the the layers that they were able to pull out the artifacts because that tells them something about the age, you know?
2: Damn, that's cool, man. It's so Indiana Jones. It's so cool.
1: Yeah, that was a pretty wild story. I mean, and what was really neat about it is, of course, there was a vine hanging from one of the, one of the pyramids. And of course, you know, we decided to climb up the side of the pyramid and that was neat. It was really cool, you know? But that was back in, that was 2004. Um, 2003, that was a while ago now, but still great adventure.
2: Well, not to put you on the spot, but if you have some pictures of it, I'll put that up in the YouTube as we're talking about it. Cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So YouTube audience, uh, check that out. You're welcome. Uh, Jacob sent those. Thank you, Jacob. Um, it's fun time traveling in this way. Cause that's it. I am asking you now, but we'll get it in the future, but people are seeing now what I asked you for now.
1: Yeah. 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 You're doing a video recording. Yeah.
2: Time, uh, time travel. So w- with all of your adventures, what, what's been like your, the, one that you didn't think you were going to make it out of?
1: Ooh. Well, I had a bit of a trick. I got into a bit of a, well, there's, there was, there was two occasions. One, I, one was probably more serious because my wife was pregnant during the occasion. And the other one was probably actually more dangerous. So the the more dangerous one was where we were, where we were actually, my wife and I were, uh, we were multi-pitching on crystal. So there's a, a um, you know, the big Jesus in Rio de Janeiro so I, I was I was li- I lived in Rio for about four or five years. And during that time we would we would go rock climbing throughout the city and um, and in in the neighboring areas. It's, it's got some of the most um, uh, its it has basically the most amount of urban rock climbing anywhere in the world. And so the, you know the cr- Cristo you can actually climb this thing. And um, we were we were going up this 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 climb. And um, we had another set of partners that were with us, another two groups. And one of the groups got stuck on this overhang. And this overhang, it was it was totally sheer. So if you get over it, you're, you're free, you're, you're hanging in like with 2000 feet of air below your feet. So you're really suspended. And so we had traversed across this thing, made it fine. And, and we kept going up. And and I was leading this, so I mean, there was no like, if you fall, you're it's pretty pretty wretched fall, right? I mean, you're you're protected because you have a partner, but it's it's not an ideal scenario um, because of the the hanging.
2: Well, yeah, because of the hanging, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the the hanging of the air and the no rock to hold on to, you know, that part of it is, yeah. So we we got up past this point, and and our partners got about halfway through, and they basically froze. And they had to start backing up and, and anyway, so they, they, they backed up, they made it out, but we kept going up, but my wife's harness started coming loose. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had gotten past the crux, which was the hardest part of the climb. And so I was like, yeah, led past the crux, got past it. And, um, but then this problem with the harness started happening. So I had to bolt myself in, go down the Astrid help her with her harness and she's crying at this point because it's scary as shit and um she she gets it fixed back in place and meanwhile everyone is below us is crying and going back down so it was just this big kind of hilarious event but you know we ended up getting through it but it was just was pretty scary because of that particular component of it and um I think the other one that was more dangerous though, was when, um, we were, we, we got my, my wife's boat and, or my wife's, her, her, father's boat, he had a, a fishing boat. It's not really fully seafaring. And, um, and, but we had gotten on it and decided to, to boat around this island, um, from the mainland of, um, uh, we were in this, uh, this, this spot in Porto Real is where it was called. It was about an hour South of Rio. And, um, we got onto this boat, mastered six months pregnant. And I, I, I didn't really have that much experience navigating a boat, especially not in the open ocean. And, um, and so we hit this, I know this was terrible. It's just ridiculous. We, we hit this corner and the, the waves started coming. I mean, these were big waves. They were way over the height of the boat and they were coming from different directions. And so we're sitting here in the boat and trying to get up these waves, hoping that the, the, the motor doesn't drown. And then going down the other side and and 15 minutes into it. I'm like, Holy shit. I don't think we can turn around in this. We just have to keep going. I mean, this is not good. This is really not good. I was really regretting it, really regretting it. And anyway, we, we kept going. (laughs) It's just terrible. We kept going. And, um, Made it through. We both threw up when we got through it, just because of the seasickness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no,
2: we all get it. We all get it. Yes, absolutely, because of the seasickness. Yeah. Oh my so god. So we, we had
1: to recuperate for a little while and just kind of, you know, you know, collect ourselves. But once we once we collected ourselves, we got we got to this beach that was on the opposite side of the island, in front of the ocean. There was no one there. We went fishing. We caught these these dog fish, these dog eyed fish. And and they were so we, we threw back the first three or four and then started keeping all the rest. Cause we didn't really, we were hoping to eat the, the fish that night. So. Yeah, it was it was a good experience. It was scary in the moment, but you look back on it and it was really fun. <laughs> Dude,
2: insane. I mean, so when does your book come out? Aren't you writing a book about all this stuff? No. That's gonna kind of, then be no. turned into a movie played by you and you and Astra like blow up, but you make it because you're a good couple, you know? That's what <laughs> I want to see for you.
1: Well, I mean, the blowing up is a real deal, man. When with kids and, you know, that adds a whole nother stress level to life. You feel like you're blowing up all the time and, you know, it's, it's crazy stuff.
2: But. Did you name him anything weird, like a direction of the earth or like a extinct animal?
1: <laughs> I named my son, uh, well, we named him Gowan, which I don't know if you, you know, like King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Yeah. I've always been kind of interested in Arthurian tale and, and that sort of thing. So, and then my daughter, Sophie, which is, I guess, you know. Not not really weird or anything, but it's fairly popular name actually. It's
2: nothing <laughs> short of adorable, of course. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Of course, that makes sense. Jacob. <laughs> um, well, you've got to write this stuff down, dude, and put it in a book. We'll have you back on. We'll get your movie contract worked out. It's all good, you know. Uh, it's, this story just has to be told. So, uh, honestly, just tell me another adventure, man. This is this is wonderful. I've got some other stuff to ask you, but I know my listeners are like, "Shut the hell up and let the man talk." So please <laughs> give it. Give us another. Yeah, there was, there, was, there was
1: this one time, um, well, during the whole mining escapades, you know, where we were going out looking for mines, you know, part of that can be a bit risky, you know, you don't know exactly the people you're going to meet when you, when you get to these locations. And most of the time, everything was, you know, was pretty relaxed. And um, there was one time, though, where we, we went to this small town and this was a, a a tourmaline mining town, and so they, the the tourmalines are quite valuable. They move millions of dollars in tourmalines uh, every every week. I mean, it's it's a big big business there, and so um, but they don't see a lot of Americans or really even Brazilians from Rio. That so when when we showed up in a in a van, it was it was kind of this odd situation where we had. In the previous town, we were just randomly going around asking people, "Do you work with rocks?" Like, I mean, seriously, that's that's what we were doing. Do you work with rocks? No, oh, darn it. And and we were had all but given up, and we were filling up the car with gas, and there was just some guy that pulled up with an engineering logo on his truck. I'm like, ah, it's a stretch. Let me just go ask him if he works with rocks. And he and he turned out he he did actually work with rocks, and um and he was big into like commercial mining of uh, certain types of minerals and so we said come with me and so we, we 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 walk we basically follow this guy out to his his office and um he gets on the phone introduces us to some guy in this random town you know about eight hours from where we were and um and so we we, uh, you know, long story short, we, we went out to this town when we got there, we got to know a couple of the guys. We bought a few things from these guys, got to know their families. And then all of a sudden the owners of the mines in the area started to catch wind, catch wind, catch wind that there was, you know, a gringo there. And there was like a carioca from Rio there. And so all of a sudden, you know, we are being taken up to go meet the dawn of one of these mines and um and so we we head out there um to meet this guy and um and he invites us to to his to his mine. and so he gives us the tour we look around all's good for lunch we sit down we start eating and he starts talking in front of all the miners by the way um he starts talking about how you know when miners steal from him he kills them and i was like hmm yeah. That's a little creepy. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little creepy. Um, so I was like, oh, I, you know, this is probably not an ideal situation to be in. And he starts talking about, and he's, by the way, he's, he's right by, you know, the, the governor of the city. So like, they're, they're both kind of co-owners in this mind. And they're like, yeah, 10 years ago, you know, there were no rules. Now we're a lot more you know, we got a lot more rules now, but I'm thinking 10 years ago, yeah, that's not really that long. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, they're probably still skin on the bones back there. That's crazy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So he's like, anyway, come on, let's let's go have a look at my other mine. And and he takes us down into this other mine and they're they're setting up, you know, blasting charges. Like the guy, I mean, I have this great picture. I'll I'll have to send you the great picture of this. This guy with a like a helmet on with like a candle. He's got a candle here. He's got dynamite right here. He's got wicks right here. He's got empty cartridges right here. And he's got a bunch of stuff in the, in the rock all around me. And I'm like, Whoa, I should probably get this picture and. get out of here
2: <laughs> yeah i would say so that's amazing yeah okay so for the youtube audience again we'll just throw these things up as you send them to me so we'll we'll work at a slideshow thing here uh, sure. it's incredible man and you so you and your wife also own a rock shop in katie texas
1: yeah 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 we have um well it, it all kind of, of spun off from from these adventures in the mines and um at the time the original owners to the katie rock shop bruce and carol huff um you know they were interested in, in finding what what you know some crazy gringo could you know what some crazy american could bring back for them that's living in brazil at the time and so they asked us you know can you can you can you export some rock for us and so that set us off on a second and you know we went on many different adventures looking for these mines but on the, some of the, the last two years, the adventure started getting a little bit more serious where we were starting to buy stuff in more larger volumes. And um, we shipped to him. And so over a few years, I came back to, to Houston for, for grad school work. and, um, and during that time, I, I had stopped working in the energy sector. And so I was more focused on, you know, how, how do I you know, make a little bit of money while I'm you know, a poor old student, you know so uh we we pushed this rock and mineral thing quite hard um as a as another business called gems in the rough and so that um over time it uh you know bruce and carol they got to a point where they were they were ready to you know ready to to close and and just kind of retire and and we had been working with them for so many years we you know we'd gotten to know them quite well and um and so it, that, the opportunity arose for us to kind of pick up the mantle. And so we picked it up a couple of years ago, two years ago, just before COVID hit, actually, three months before COVID, which is another kind of story in and of itself, right? But you know, every business owner has got some wild ride stories on, on you know, how to adapt during the whole COVID you know, deal. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we, you know, the shop is located in Old Town, Katy, Texas, so just on Pinoke. North of I ten, so you know, Big Katie Mills Mall and that big American Furniture Warehouse. It's you know, right there, tucked in the into an old, old you know, single family building. It doesn't look like a store at all, but anyway. So we have you know specializations in in minerals coming out of Brazil, and you know, my my general expertise is in the area of reefs. So we have these old microbialites, which in microbialites um, stromatolites are the oldest living known life form on earth. And, and frankly, they think it's the most probable extraterrestrial life form that will be discovered is actually microbial life of some kind, probably on Enceladus and, you know, on Saturn. Yeah. But
2: so I mean, Jupiter, What's that? Europa on Jupiter, the ice sheet around the outside. They think there's liquid water under it, like an ocean, and they can just drill down there. And if you believe yeah. space is real, then that's cool. That's really cool. I, I like that. Um, But yeah, Enceladus, man, there's a ton of uh, exoplanets and moons, even like you said, out there that uh, could, could harbor microbial life like that. And that would be a, an amazing find, right? That'd, that'd be a step in the right direction. Um, it would be
1: just, just totally, it would be totally mind-blowing to know that Life can evolve outside of Earth. Just the fact that it can do it, I think, would be the biggest revelation to humanity, you know?
2: Oh, we're going to segue into aliens right now. So what's your thought? Go. <laughs> well, I think
1: it's, it's improbable that there isn't uh, alien life form of some kind. I mean, you know, there's, there's numerous, you know, quantitative uh, approaches that have been developed to try and, and un- understand the probability of these things. And, um, it's, and it's just, it's not, it's, it's whether, how developed the life forms actually are, you know, and whether they could, they would have advanced technology. I mean, this is, I mean, that becomes a little bit harder to wrap your head around because, I mean, there's so much distance in space that, that for even an incredibly advanced civilization would have mind-blowingly difficult time to make it out of their galaxy and into another, another location, you need to have some totally a non-existent technology that just doesn't exist now, you know, like <laughs> it could be wormholes or things like this, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, absolutely. Well, that we're being told, right. Cause there's a lot of different ways we could splinter with this, but we'll go with the basic one. So if, if it's, If the universe is, what, 14.5 billion years old, something like that, uh, the Earth is only four and a half billion years old by that model. Uh, So, therefore, I mean, there's been a lot of extra time for life to not only develop elsewhere, but develop more technologically out there. So, to answer your question, that is one of the biggest retorts on this is, well, you know, with the vast distances in space and everything like that, how are they traversing that? Because that's not a known technology. Well, I would add to that, it's not a known technology to us. Exactly. Exactly. It, it is absolutely entirely possible that the reason that extraterrestrials or any other life form would come here from any distance at all, no matter how perceivably vast from our perspective, then the answer to that question would be because it's not hard for them. They just do it. You know, kind of like how an ant marvels at us for being able to get in a car and drive off. It, it's yeah. the connections cognitively just aren't there for us to be able to comprehend that sort of technology. And, and yeah. it's like, um, I forget I always forget this. This is the one I try not to forget. But anyway, it's it's any um, you know advanced technology to a primitive society would be indistinguishable from magic. And I know somebody's yelling the answer out there. Just comment me. Thank you guys very much. Um, so, uh, and that's the truth, man. It's it's we don't know what the hell it is. And and to further that point, that's just the extraterrestrial element of it. That's a small sliver, a small you know surface level layer. That's where everybody starts, and then you get into like interterrestrials and a hollow earth theory. And then you've got like, you know, the lizard people and interdimensionals, which is really, really cool. And then future humans coming back in time machines. I love all of them, man. I think, I think it's so much fun. And uh, you know, it's because I, I think that that these kind of ideas arise is because people are just trying to figure it out. Science hasn't recognized it as a science. So we don't have any money or time or energy behind it other than what independent people are willing to commit to the study of this on their own. And this is why you get so many amazing theories with it. I mean, it's kind of this odd deal. We might get more firm theories fed to us by mainstream science, but I mean, with all the other cool theories, it just opens your mind to the possibilities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, like Jules Verne is a great example. I mean, he was he was almost soothsayer-like with what technology he was able to predict. And, and in many cases, a lot of people believe that technology often arises because of the stories and the fantasies that get created ahead of it. And, and so, I mean, I absolutely agree with you on that for sure.
2: It's just so cool and it'll just blow your mind thinking about it. And that's a lot of what this show is about, man. We've got cool stories from adventures from around the world, which I'm glad to add, man. I mean, you're, you're just so cool again. It's just, (laughs) it's just cool to catch up with you brother and to see that you're doing so well. Uh, Okay. Well um, then what are your thoughts on extraterrestrials? I mean, is that your favorite theory that they're coming from other planets or have you heard any other things or have you entertained any other thoughts on it?
1: I, I think that that if they are traveling here and, I mean, given all the new evidence coming out, I mean, I, I think that there is fairly compelling evidence that there are, there is technology you know, like wandering around and it probably contains aliens but it could just be drone technology from other <laughs> other areas. Right. I mean, if, if, if they're coming through wormholes or parallel dimensions, you know, through quantum theory or, or some other, you know, physics that we haven't understood, which is more likely what's happening. If they're coming through some other physics, we don't understand, then more likely it's something to do with parallel dimensions, um, or, and, or, or, and, or wormholes. (laughs) And, um, yeah, it just seems that that you know antimatter is is something that could eventually be harnessed if technology was developed enough. you know, you could potentially hold open wormholes if 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 that technology was really understood. Um, and we fantasize about it now, but that doesn't mean the science won't be there eventually.
2: I mean, from our perspective, it's kind of like a manatee creating CERN. You know, it's we we just don't the gap in understanding that we've got, I think, between what we're capable of doing and even comprehending is nowhere near what they can just walk outside and whittle like the equivalent to us just grabbing a stick and whittling it. You know, it's that that quick and seamless for them because they operate in a different dimension is one of the thoughts is one of the ideas. So um, with with everything going on with disclosure right now, I mean, do you think that it's possible that we'll see uh, alien contact in your lifetime? Or that the u.s government will recognize it i hope
1: so man (laughs) i hope so you know what else i hope i hope that it becomes accessible to actually get into space i i i think i would be happy if i were to die knowing that there was people in mass going into space you know i think something about that would would mean i've lived through one of the most important eras of mankind i think absolutely
2: Man, I got to, I got to have you on with David Weiss, man. Do you know who that is?
1: You know, the name's actually familiar. I'm, I, let me look it up. I'm gonna have to look this up. Please tell me, tell me up. about David.
2: Please look this up while we're talking about it. Cause I want to see your reaction when you realize who this guy is, because I want to talk to, I want to have you a planetary science t- scientist talk to this guy because, uh, You know, the understandings of reality is something I've really been playing with a lot lately on different ideas about what this place is, you know, and then you go through the simulation idea, uh, which Amy Belair and I just had a great conversation about on the show. And um, you go, you go through all of these different ideas and you eventually land on David Wise. Mm -hmm. Did you see who he was? Yeah, flat earth theory, (laughs) I see. <laughs> <laughs> I would love for you two to sit down because what he loves is people like you. That it's erroneous. There's no fucking way. Like that's that's the kind of guy he wants to talk to. Because I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, NASA's lying to us," and he was just like, "Oh man!" And for him, it's more fun to talk to people like you. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I I, I love engaging on controversial topics, so it's 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 always fun. You know, I mean, people. A lot of people have, have an interesting perspective and it's, you should hear it out. You know, it can change the way that you've developed your own perspective on, on, you know, the truths that you understand, you know?
2: See, guys, I told you. I told you it was cool as shit. Uh, that's the idea. That's the science mind that we need right now, man, is that kind of conversation right there. And it, yeah. we've been doing a lot lately about where the philosophy meets the physics, where the spirituality meets the science. You know, we've been really trying to integrate and marry the two, are actively doing it, successfully doing it. So yeah. having folks like you, the open mind that you do, man, it's a it's a big deal. So working with all the rocks that you do, um, have you... So there's of course a new age movement, and I'm sure that you guys facilitate some of that in your shop that you have about the power of crystals, the different things that they do, the different healing properties and modalities. Uh, do you dabble into that at all?
1: So my my wife is getting into it a lot more. I mean, where I haven't actually gone too deep down into it. I mean, I, I understand kind of you know the general the general ideas that um, the rock has a chemical compound in certain elements that make up the rock can have enhanced, you know, the human uh, ability to deal with, um, you know, negative or positive forces basically. So like uh, a conductive rock, you might be malachite, which allows you to channel certain energies because it's a conductive rock and it's filled with copper and which is a conductor. Right. And so there, there's certain, there's certain components of, of, of metaphysics, which, which I find, uh, really interesting because what they've done is is they've they've actually evaluated the true um, elemental characteristics that that make up a, a compound. And they're saying that if you get this in enough concentration, or if you apply this to certain areas, then this can actually give you physiological benefits. and um and I don't think that's really an altogether new thing. I mean, this is something that that you know people have meditated, you know that that are deep into meditation. they They are able to create, a lot through through meditation and and you know they're not necessarily using a conductor of some kind they you know they study it for decades and but you know i feel like the metaphysical you know imbuing properties into rocks in this way it can help to channel you know some of these meditative healing you know processes that normally takes people many years to get and so i think that's kind of what the field of metaphysics is really doing is it's allowing people in a more accessible way to 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 find you know um, to to find help or to find healing or to find strength or whatever you know whatever it might be. I mean, all the different elements have different um, attributes that can you know augment our moods or or our general physiology. And so, I, I think there's 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 a healthy amount of of mythology. Which is really required to make anything work in the human psyche, and then there's also that um, that true component where there is actually elements in some of these rocks that can help you. Like for example, amber. You know, I mean, I actually, if you look at the chemistry of amber, um, it does give off chemicals. It, it excretes chemicals from the amber, and so if you're if you have children that are are you know cutting teeth and they're they're feeling pain then the amber gives off like a pain suppressant, a natural pain suppressant that can actually actually can, can help with the the teething process. And that's not really a, as a metaphysics talk, I'm talking like chemically speaking, it does go into your body and and it can actually help with the, with, (laughs) with minor, it's not a huge amount of pain, but it's enough to actually, you know, calm the children, the infants down while, while they're cutting their teeth. So we did for both of our kids and and it, it helped. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. I mean, some different minerals have, have stronger, um, you know, attributes, some that actually really properly manifest, you know?
2: And to the amber in the mouth thing, I mean, it could be a couple of things. And this is kind of a point I wanted to make as well, is that maybe it's just psychological for the babies because now they have something else in their mouth to think about and to interact with rather than their wound or them feeling bad or something like that, or the teething process, which is painful, right? So uh, another thing is, is like to all this metaphysical stuff, man, right? A lot of people look at it as woo-woo. A lot of people get a ton from it, which kind of leads me to the conclusion, like I've said a while now, that reality is literally what you make it and what you think it is, you know, on all levels. So even dichotomies exist in a dualistic universe in such a way to where it just always complements exactly what you want to experience here, is one idea. Now, uh, whenever you talk about um, this being a mindset or a dichotomy, just like anything else, like, you know, and we need that psychologically just as as whatever we are, uh, then... To the people who believe that the rocks do something, there could be an element of a placebo effect. You know, there could be because there's a story wrapped up into it, because there's some mythology. Like you said, there's something to engage in and interact with intellectually. And then that allowed you spiritual freedom, which is wonderful. I mean, I think that's great now. But I like the fact that you're talking about actual science that uh, is really involved in these minerals and different properties like that. So what's what's another cool one?
1: So another, another mineral that, that I really like is, is formalin obviously because of, 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 you know, the experiences we had lo- going through Minas Gerais in the center of the country of Brazil. And, um, but the minerals themselves are just beautiful. Um, they, they come in a variety of colors, you know, pink, green, um, you know, blue and, and they have this watermelon color as well. Um, but they create the most spectacular specimens, you know, the, um, they're, I'm not certain about the, the metaphysical properties of those guys, but in terms of just natural beauty, they're really a fantastic mineral and, um, the stories as well of, of where you find them and, and the people that surrounding these things are, are what makes them, uh, also pretty
2: neat too (laughs) yeah and that's a shirt you should make for your shop or sell it online or something like that and it just on the front it says do you work with rocks and on the back it says I work with rocks and then just sell that from your story earlier uh well exactly tell me tell me about the work that you're doing now
1: so um yeah I mean at the moment I'm I'm working for a, a service company so Halliburton um in the oil and gas industry and and we're working quite a bit with um, with actually we, we image rocks with CT scanners, and and then once we have these these volumes these image volumes that have been created, we we try and understand the properties of the rocks. And what's been interesting about this is um, you know the industry is actually moving in the direction of carbon sequestration, which is actually I'm really excited to hear about because it's it's all the the technology surrounding um, carbon sequestration and doing it right, um, is, is well evolved in the oil and gas industry. And so it can be.
2: Carbon sequestration is you sequestering carbon?
1: That's right. So the, the, the idea is that we need to bring, take carbon out of the atmosphere and, and bring it either back into the biology of the earth. Um, so the trees and the forests, or we need to bring it into the oceans, Um, and and let it kind of go get out of the atmosphere that way. And then the third way, and and the best way is to permanently bury it in the ground in the subsurface. Um, Because when it gets into the subsurface, it can be trapped there for millions of years. And effectively, it's it's brought out of the carbon out of the the carbon sink, basically. Um, and, And this is kind of the goal. The problem is, is we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, which is creating a, a reverberation between the upper atmosphere and the ground, And so this heat just kind of cycles and it can't escape because the CO2 traps it. Right. And the CO2 and the methane. And so what the, you know, the utility companies and, and the oil and gas companies and the governments are now pushing is that, um, you know, tax credits are going to be provided to those that are are showing their, are you know, carbon neutral or, or carbon negative. And, um, not carbon negative, carbon neutrals is about as good as what a lot of people can get to at this point. But some of these technologies like geothermal, as an example, can can really help to in certain parts of the world where where geothermal is possible to actually be used. You can can create some sustainable energy that way. But the, the carbon sequestration, I mean, the goal is we need to get this, we need to get CO2s out of the atmosphere and into a safe place where they're not going to cause heat, uh, not cause the earth to continue warming. And so um, that, that has been kind of an interesting, you know, change in the industry. Everyone all of a sudden is, is it's not a surprise given the politics of what's been going on recently and, and um, the reality of, of global climate change, right? I mean, so this is all something that, that has to be mitigated through science because it's being created by us that we have to fix the problem.
2: You know, there's a lot of experts on the other side with a ton of data that say that humanity does not have the carbon footprint that we think that we do, that the Earth is actually handling it, adapted to it, and is absorbing it just fine. And it's actually cooler than this time a long time ago, in like thousands of years ago, where there was no humans emitting carbon any level of carbon at all uh, other than like their fires or something like that. And I don't think they were, they were doing any kind of damage like that. And it was hotter back then. So a lot of people would argue that this is just a cycle that the earth goes through. This is not that this has to do with solar cycles. This has to do with where we are as we traverse around in our galaxy. Um, Around the outside there or whatever, uh, Milankovitch
1: cycles. Yeah.
2: Oh, of course you knew, asshole. Yeah, you yeah. some son of a bitch. So I,
1: so, so it, it's pale, so paleoclimatology. So this is an entire field that's budding. It's it's blossoming right now, and a lot of the work is actually happening. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work happening in different places, but but um, when in grad school they were really focused on this, and so the the I'm gonna, I'm going to draw something real quick here. So this is. This is, um, let's call this, let's call this present day. So over here you have, have, well, you're not gonna be able to see this. So over here we have present day. And if we go back in time, we can see that, yes, there are proxies for the temperature of the earth and they oscillate. And, and they oscillate according to a lot of varying input parameters. So part of it has to do with how many glaciers are on the surface of the earth part of it has to do with the position of the continents because the continents have been moving Um, and so when when the continents have fully separated it's created um ocean circulation cells and and that's only really happened in in the last um i think it's basically since the eocene it's been about through Oh, I don't want to say this on, on the podcast. I might get it wrong. Dude, but just say it, a number, it's, it's dude. Been, people will
2: blast you in the comments. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and if it's, nothing it's else, been, it'll make people look it up and, and try and prove you wrong. And so they'll learn something new. So go yeah, ahead, just say yeah. a number. Say five. Who gives a
1: shit? Yeah, the, 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 big, the big event that that, that we are studying I and mean, paleoclimatologists are studying is the, the PETM boundary, the, the, the Paleo-Eocene boundary. Is at that point, the earth actually had very similar rates of increase in CO2 as we're having now. And so what paleoclimatologists are trying to do is they're trying to understand what are the mechanisms that caused the CO2 and, and the earth to heat up at the same type of rate that we're experiencing now. And there's no other period of time in, in geologic history where we're seeing this kind of elevation except for that one moment in time um, at the PETM boundary. Um, and so, but the reality is, is you're right. Every 11 to 12,000 years, we often cycle between warmer and cooler climates. So the last glaciation, we came out of the last glaciation at around 11, 12,000 years ago. So right around 10,000 BC, coincidentally, right when farming and, and all this stuff started blossoming in the human civilization. And so, you know, from 10,000 BC to about 30,000 BC, that was, that was an ice age, an ice age that was going on. And then before that, it was another warmer period. And so there's, there's different, if you, if you can think about climate change, it's, it's a function of Milankovitch cycles, which operate on like 160,000 year cycle. And so when, when you get the, the solar systems moving around, and causing changes in the climate, we're talking like really long intervals, like these are really long wavelength changes. But what can happen is that you get a, a warm event or a cool event during a Malen- during these, you can be at a peak or a trough of a Milankovitch cycle. And when that happens and you have other factors that are compounding, then you can get exaggerated situations um, that can cause massive extinction events. And, um, and so, so that that's, that's, and you can see this, you can see the compounding effect of different factors like volcanic activity. So volcanic activity is usually associated with plate tectonics. If you have more plate tectonics, you're having a more active, um, ridge in the center of the ocean, which is create, you're creating rock. And while it's doing that, it's giving off CO2 and methane and sulfuric. Acid. I mean, there's all kinds of greenhouse, very bad greenhouse gasses that come out, and and so that's why plate tectonics and volcanism is associated with, you know, climate change as well. Then you get catastrophic things like asteroids coming in, blocking out the light and throwing off the climate cycle that way. And so, actually, the reality is is that, you know, um, there are cyclical changes that happen, and but they, they happen at longer length scales. Longer time scales than than what we're observing now, and so what you can actually see, what you can measure, um, in Mauna Loa uh, volcano in Hawaii, they've been taking fairly accurate um, greenhouse gas readings since the fifties, and so um, the, the paleoclimatologists they they study climate change based on this data that goes back to the fifties. And so they can see the, um, the, the concentrations of, of greenhouse gases rise over time. And, and the concerning part is that it's not like a, a shallow ramp, right? It's, it's like a hockey stick, it's like, like this. And, and the problem is, is just the science, is that if you have CO2 in the atmosphere, the sunlight can get through it. It hits the concrete, heats up, bounces up, it gets reflected back because of the CO2 acts like a reflection, an insulator. So it just starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And so these, these, and the CO2 builds up, builds up, and and we're adding more and more as humans. And so the only solution is we have to take it out of the atmosphere. And you can put it in the oceans, but then it can cycle back out to, to the atmosphere. You can put it in the forest, but then the forest dies and decays and actually puts out, um, you know, you know, probably, you know, puts out CO2, methane, every, every, every problem that you get with decaying forest that's happening. So there's actually studies showing that, that it may not even be the right solution to reforest the earth because of the problem of decaying. I mean, it's going to help of course, but I mean, really the only solution we have as a species is to get it into the ground and pronto. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm excited to see that the, the oil and gas industry is taking this shit seriously. And, um, and and frankly, the industry needs people that are conscientious about these things. And so I feel like, uh, you know, any, any advances that I can take that I can help to better the world. And it actually gives me relevance and more meaning in life, you know?
2: Yeah. Why can sunlight go through the CO2, but, And to earth, but not bounce back the other way. Is it only reflective on the inside?
1: Yeah. So what happens is, is you have, um, you have strong sunlight that comes, hits the earth. Right. And as it hits the earth, some of that sunlight bounces back and some of it makes it through. And so what happens is, is not all of it makes it through. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not totally a mirror, right? So some of it does get through. And, and But some of it reflected, right? And so what happens is, is that, that passes through, it hits the ground, it comes back up, and some of it gets through, but some of it bounces back. And so as you increase the concentration of CO2, this thin layer starts to thicken, and it becomes more like a mirror at some point. And so at some point, the CO2 gets so thick that it actually reflects off the Earth doesn't, I mean, the sunlight reflects off the earth. That's when you get like a a volcanic explosion and, and you've got a very thick layer, but you can have a situation where the CO2 gets denser and denser and denser. And because the molecules are densely packed, they're more efficient at refracting that sunlight back to earth. And so it creates that thermal, you know, that thermal runaway effect where things start heating and it heats, and it exaggerates, and you add concrete, it reflects better, and you lose forests, it's reflecting more, and so there's there's many many different um, feedback loops ultimately that are that are that's tied to this situation.
2: Kind of like what happened on Venus, it was a runaway greenhouse effect, right? Yeah. Where it's covered covered in clouds because it's hotter than Mercury, isn't that accurate? Is that what they tell us? You know.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's true. Um, the Venus they think at some point in time, um, you know, was more habitable. Uh, obviously, it, its temperature is like eight hundred or nine hundred degrees uh, centigrade or something. It, it's it's totally in, inhospitable. Um, I mean, I think only the Russians have, have landed on Venus officially, and um, and so they have pictures I think from the seventies or something. That's it's really interesting to see, but I mean there's a lot that's not really understood about Venus. I mean, you know, I don't think really anyone really knows what happened there. There was some feedback loop, which is possible to occur on earth um, that, that happened and it got run away and all of the water evaporated. And so it could have had something, something to do with sunspots potentially. I mean, there's a variety of things that could have could have happened solar flares i mean it's much closer to the sun and so this would have a much stronger impact but um you know they they i mean the, the science science really doesn't know exactly what happened on venus as far as as i understand
2: and what um, i think is sure interesting out. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is a lot of sign. a lot of people say what you say about it. And then some other people say that there's a guy named Valiant Thor that came from there and that, um, he was helping our military with stuff and he was a really cool guy. And there were like four people. It was like two dudes, two chicks. And they came from there and they all lived on Venus and everybody's way cooler than us. And they're big and they got like, <laughs> cans of shit. Uh, it's and, like John Carpenter
1: on Mars. I mean, I love that story. Good, I mean, it's a good story.
2: Yeah. such
1: a good one. such a good one. But you know, I mean, the, the reality is, is that, something like that could happen on earth and something like that probably also happened on mars uh i mean they they do believe i mean there is water on mars not a lot left and they haven't really discovered any any big lakes or anything other uh, and in the poles they've discovered some very large bodies of water um but they're not very thick is the problem and they don't really have, there's not really the right um, atmospheric conditions for it to warm up to become fluid. So, you know, on, on earth, the thing that can happen, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario here. Um, You hear about the glaciers calving and breaking off and melting and all this, this situation. I I mean, this is, this is a serious situation because um, have you, have you, have you looked at, have you gotten a glass of warm water and put a really big ice cube in it and it took a it does, it's not very effective, right? When you smash up that ice into itty bitty little pieces and you put it in that warm water, that warm water cools off really quickly and that ice just goes away. And, and that, that's because of the surface area. So if you increase the surface area of something, it's gonna react more quickly. So smaller, try, try this, when you get a chance, break up the ice, put it in a warm glass of water and then in another glass of water, you use a big ice cube, put it in there and just watch how quickly each one melts and so that happens that that phenomenon is happening with with glaciers right now and so as as things break up they melt even quicker and as they they melt quicker um they change the density in the oceans and that causes the circulations in the oceans to actually change because they're driven by density change and temperature change um so the top water is warmer and it sinks and the cold water comes up in the poles and this drives you know, circulation cells in in the oceans. But when the fresh water comes into the oceans, it changes the density contrast, the circulation slows down, and then all of a sudden the water starts warming up even more. And so when the water warms up more, you get more evaporation in the atmosphere, and then you get more reflections and things start heating up. And so then what happens and what is already happening is the permafrost. When we start seeing the permafrost melt, that's the, it, the permafrost melting is, is not actually the problem. The problem is all is the dead stuff in the permafrost because you've got like 30,000, 40,000 years of dead stuff that hasn't decayed yet. And that is a carbon sink. So if, if the temperatures keep warming, we can get to a point, and and I hope I never see this point in my lifetime, but we could get to a point where the permafrost starts to melt you get increased CO2 entering into the atmosphere, methane from all that decay, increases the temperature even more. All the glaciers melt, all the permafrost melts. You get into a runaway effect where the temperatures get too warm and then the oceans start to stratify. They stop moving. And that's when that happened once in geologic history. It's happened uh, really one big time. It was the, all the Permo-Triassic extinction. And it, it was where basically 98.6, 99% of all life on earth died, all life. And the the earth became um, a snowball. Uh, it was covered in ice. And, but right before it became covered in ice, it was really warm and the ocean stopped circulating. And so this is kind of this strange feedback loop that can happen with the different biomes in the earth trying to rebalance other biomes when they're being impacted by, you know, external effects like, you know, temperature changes, more droughts, you know, heavy rains, you know, the biome reacts to these things. And and so all of these things participate in this acting to CO2 Um, and that is the problem. So we need to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's, that's the key, the key, the key thing that needs to happen in the next 10 years.
2: You know, all of of that could totally be true, but I'm just so glad that I know that the earth is flat and that we don't have to worry about any of this stuff and all of it's just a big (laughs) lie to funnel money. You know, it's a big money laundering scheme and that's all this (laughs) is. So, um, but no, it's fascinating, man. and i love I love science talk like this. So it's very cool. We haven't done this like this on the show yet, and i'm I'm truly grateful, man. So yeah. I, I did want to ask you while you're here, if you had looked into as a geologist, I'm sure you're interested in the Sphinx, and did you see the weathering that Dr. Schock found, Dr. Robert Schock and Anthony West? Have you heard of this?
1: You know, uh, I, I lived in Egypt for like five years, and I got to see the pyramids and the Sphinx when I was a kid and and, but I have not heard what you're talking about. Tell me about it. What really?
2: Happens? Okay. So Anthony uh, West, basically, a while back, uh, I don't have dates. And this is the best I can do is just a breakdown for you. He surmised after just observation of the Sphinx. And he's not a scientist. He just had really good observation, and uh, he looked at it and said, "Well, the water, the weathering on the enclosure, the side walls of the Sphinx, where the bricks were allegedly hewn out of." Then rearranged and you know shaped to build the Sphinx out of. So the enclosure walls had these distinct markings on it that he surmised was weather ero- or water erosion. But the problem with that idea is, is they say that that was the Sphinx of Khufu, uh, Khufu, right? And then, um, but that was only 3- 3,500 BC, something like that. Is that accurate? I, I'm not
1: sure, but yeah, the, the the dates of the Sphinx go back around to that time timeline. I think.
2: And the, but the problem with that idea is the established Egyptian idea is that uh, the water erosion, the way that it looks, Egypt didn't have water like that for 12, but 12,000 years ago. So it makes the Sphinx at least a lot older than it was so the other thing was is how the head of the Sphinx and the shoulders and everything looked to be very disproportionate to the actual physiological makeup of the lion below it right so what they think happened, and one of the ideas is, is that that was used to be a lion, and it actually used to face, of course, the constellation Leo on the summer solstice, and that's um, that was around the time where all that water was occurring. You know, it was a very lush, um, very abundant with yeah, life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, but that says though that the pyramids are way way older, and at least if nothing else, the Sphinx for sure. And it's it's very interesting weather erosion. I'll I'll send you a video, man. Uh, Robert Schock, he's fascinating. He's written written amazing shit. He's fascinating dude. So he's yeah, a geologist that went over there at the behest of uh, Anthony West, and they looked at it, and he did this whole thing and he's been like banned from over there and stuff people don't want to talk to him all the egypt egyptologists are pissed off uh because zahi is hawass we don't have time to go into that dude but i am also curious about so if you haven't seen that i'll send you something uh, and um, i'll link something down in the show notes for anybody else curious um also what do you think about the idea that the pyramids were actually uh electricity conductors they were gigantic power plants they had they utilized piezoelectricity under the under the ground a long way under earth and there's a big aqueduct underneath there Uh, and the tunnels don't make any sense but then when you kind of apply the principles that tesla was talking about about the energy everywhere but then they were harnessing actual piezoelectric properties then yeah one could surmise that that was some sort of ancient power plant do you what do you think about all that
1: I don't know. You know, I mean, it seems as though that it's an awful lot of effort to build the pyramids and for them to not have some other purpose other than being a tomb.
2: Well, they weren't (laughs) a tomb. No bodies were ever found and no inscriptions were ever found. Actually, there was one inscription found, but it was proven to be fake and graffiti from a guy who went up there just wanting to make a name for himself. Oh, you're talking about the Sphinx? Yeah. No, no, no. uh, the, The pyramid, the Great Pyramid so no inscriptions whatsoever and no uh bodies were ever found in the in the pyramids so therefore that also lends more credence to the idea that they were not for burials and because if you look at other tombs they're very ornate they tell the story and the lineage and all that they're adorned with gold even though you know some of them have been looted like you like you talked about about in brazil but the that idea though that they no no uh bodies were ever found no graffiti no markings of any kind nobody claimed it even uh, Egyptians from a long time ago would say uh, these were here when we got here. You know, we showed up and this was already here. So there's no real claim to the to the building of the pyramids, which is interesting too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I I, I studied a little bit on um, the Ptolemy dynasty, but they were they were the ones that built the the Great Library of Alexandria. You know, like there was a line of Egyptian. Um, I don't even think, I guess he was a Pharaoh. Um, but, um, that was more, more in the like 80, 80 BC timeline, um, up until 180. So right around the time of, of Christ, I think. But, um, before that, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about, about the origins of the pyramids. I mean, obviously I've heard many stories about what, you know, some of the different theories out there, but, I, I don't. I don't really know enough about it, honestly.
2: Yeah, it's all, <laughs> it's all theories. But I mean, when you when you factor in the water erosion, when you factor in the piezoelectricity that can be noted and, and duplicated, and then the fact, of course, they were not burial chambers, no inscriptions. All of these things lead up to that their purpose was for something else. And also, yeah. if you look into uh, the properties of um, the obelisks and how those are all over the planet, <clears throat> it could be some sort of interconnected sort of grid. You know, that's tapping into an energy that. We don't know about, but I'm sure some of us at high power, maybe energy companies, maybe your lizard bosses over at Halliburton, you know, they <laughs> probably be, know about. It. Yeah,
1: <laughs> could be.
2: So, my friend, uh, we'll we'll probably wrap it up here, man. But I just wanted to throw a couple like a uh, you know geologically centered uh, kind of crazy zany high strangeness ideas at you there. So that those are fun, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you know about the the, the point about the obelisk. You know th- that reminds me of of dragons, right? I mean, dragons are kind of a common theme in in civilization. You see them occurring in different parts of the world that that were totally isolated from one another. And so you have to ask yourself, like, were there really dragons, or is there something in humanity that that can? Imp- can see dragons, but not is is is, is, it, is is the dragon a stretch for something that that humans want to see that we we see because we are innately human, and so I guess my point is is that you know maybe these structures like the obelisk, which occur in different locations, and maybe they're driven by something deeper in us that we don't understand, and maybe that theme is associated with um, you know something organized, or, or maybe it's just Something human, you know, maybe, maybe the structures are human. Just they, they def- define us. Dragons define us and our escapism of the world, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I totally believe dragons existed, but I think the obelisks are penises, dude. Uh, it's a yeah. symbol of power. Yeah. But also, yeah. It, it was probably like a power conductor or something like that, or a receiver, you know, something like that, uh, because of the fact that they cross cultural boundaries, like a bunch of different cultures did it, which says that it may not have necessarily been a deity because they practice different religions, they practice different beliefs. So that didn't connect them. What did connect them is similar structures, the three uh, windows in pyramid shapes, pyramid shapes rather steps flat top whatever that design was always utilized they were utilized in specific grid patterns with water flow underneath them which again speaks to the piezoelectricity property that they were probably utilizing Uh, and then you have the fact that they had to have been at that point then practical rather than symbolic uh but i totally dig the dragon thing i i love that i want to talk to you about your weird fascination about that later when whenever you come on another time okay sounds great something going on brandon Hey, Thank uh, you. well, uh, do you want to be found? Do you want me to link anything or you want to tell people how to find you and your, and your rock shop, man. I'll definitely. Link yeah, that sure.
1: Yeah. That. I mean, if, if you guys want to come over and talk rocks with me, you know, or my wife or, or any of the guys at the, the Katie rock shop, come out and visit us, uh, just in, in old Katie, North of I-10 on, on Pinoak road. 535 pin oak road i'll see you
2: there (laughs) damn what a plug that was profesh as fuck dude you sound like a radio ad so um that'll be that'll be like 50 bucks dude we'll work it out (laughs) Uh, no and i'll link all that in the show notes guys thank you jacob dude so much you're fascinating man we'll definitely have you back on this has been a lot of fun dude i'm gonna get you hooked up with david weiss and i'm gonna we're gonna make you a flat earther and i'm gonna be here for it it's gonna be great sounds great it sounds great
1: that sounds good
2: Jacob. (laughs) thank you my friend have a great one have a great weekend as well thank you take care All right. A massive thanks to Jacob Proctor for coming on the show. Ladies, I know what you're thinking. Uh, He already said it. He's married, so settle down. Uh, None of that, please. All the ways to find him, of course, will be linked in the show notes, guys. Jacob is awesome. Uh, Go check out his uh, rock store in Katy there if you live in the area or check him out online. They have a wonderful website, which will be linked in the show description as well. Also linked down there is the direct contact to expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where the links to all of the socials, that's where you can do all all of it it's kind of a central hub for everything uh, we're working on some merch so stay tuned for that uh, if you want to support the show, Patreon is on there as well, and we are truly grateful for that. Uh, liking and sharing is the best way, uh, and so continue to do that. Thank you guys so much uh, for your week this week, guys. Go out into it and pick up a piece of litter. Let's keep this planet a little bit better than we find it, and uh, just be nice to everybody that you see. Buy a meal or a book of stamps or a cup of coffee or something like that uh, to any stranger that you meet. If you're in line behind somebody, they got a bottle of water or something, just buy it for man. It's a big deal, uh, and uh, Uh, get out of that left-hand lane. Of course, uh, we are in Texas and we hate that Jacob shout out. uh, You're out of the left-hand lane and I appreciate it. Uh, As well as you guys just remember above and beyond anything else, just go out into your week this week and y'all just be good to one another. Thank y'all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.